Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. We'll have a special offer for you on a subscription with Charcoal Book Club later in the show. This is episode number eight, and we're delighted to welcome to the show Gordon Lang. Gordon, hi. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. We invited Gordon Lang to talk about a book that he's written called In Camera. But first, I want to just say a little bit about what Gordon does. He has a website called CameraLabs.com. And frankly, these are some of the best camera and lens reviews I've seen. What I really like is that these reviews are real-world reviews. You don't do these things with test cards and graphs of chromatic aberration, but you go out in the world and you take pictures and you talk about how you use the cameras. You don't get overly technical. It's kind of interesting. A lot of your sample photos are taken in restaurants and pubs. There are a lot of pictures of glasses of beer and cups of coffee. You probably enjoy doing this, don't you? Well, my my sort of joint passions are food, photography, and travel, and they they can combine pretty effectively. So, yeah, you'll you'll see if you follow me on Instagram or anywhere else, you'll see lots of pictures of where I'm obviously traveling and then obviously eating something and clearly taking pictures of it while I'm at it. Definitely. <laughs> so these these are great reviews, but you've written a book that I bought about a year ago called In Camera. Oh, thank you. And. I reviewed it. There'll be a link in the show notes to my review on my website. And this book really changed the way that I approach taking pictures. So you're, you're guilty of costing me money. Let me explain why. At the time, I had an Olympus Pen F and I had a half dozen lenses and I was really happy. And then I got your book and I really appreciated the way the Fuji film simulations looked. So I said to mm. myself, I'm going to try and find a used Fuji film camera. Well, eh, do you buy a used one or do you buy the X100F, which has just come out? Well, I went for the X100F, and early this year, I sold off my Olympus equipment, and I bought an X-Pro2, so I'm entirely Fuji, thanks to you in many ways. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> those, those seductive, sweet colors of the Fujifilm system. It's, it's true, and so Jeff, Jeff and I were talking before we got you on here about what you present in your book makes a really good case for people spending time to learn what their cameras can do. In a recent episode, we talked about the difference between RAW and JPEG. And one thing that I pointed out is that these aren't cameras. These are computers with lenses on them, with powerful processors that can do all sorts of things. And too many people ignore that and don't shoot the JPEGs or don't try to shoot the JPEGs in any special way. Is that why you decided to write this book? Yeah, it's actually a few things. I mean, the, the interesting thing about what you've just brought up there is that there's this assumption that JPEGs and RAW files are not evolving as time goes on. Now, digital cameras have been around since the mid-90s. And back then, the JPEG processing was horrendous. You know, you would shoot and you'd be ma mad to use the JPEGs. <laughs> uh, you would shoot RAW and it became part of the natural uh, workflow. You would you would process, you'd shoot RAW, you'd process the RAW files at, you know, to taste. But as you both know very well, well, in technology, things move very, very quickly. And, and you can't assume that that anything is going to stand still or not improve. And that has definitely been the case with uh, in-camera processing and, and JPEG processing in general. It gets better with every generation. And I've been I've been testing digital cameras since the early 90s. So I've seen this progression from where you definitely needed to process raw on everything to where we are today, where some cameras still really benefit from it. I have to say even though I do like the colors straight out of, say, Nikon and Canon cameras, they both still benefit a lot from processing in RAW. And when you have these arguments, sorry, heated discussions with people about <laughs> RAW and JPEG, I always stop them and say, 
just out of curiosity, what camera are you using? And the, the biggest raw advocates are, in my experience, Canon and Nikon owners because they, they need it to get the best out of them. But the biggest JPEG advocates are people with Fujifilm. Um, also, even though you sold your Olympus or got rid of it, I find that Olympus JPEGs are very, very nice out of camera. And it got to a point a while ago for me where it wasn't that they're good enough. It's that they are perfect for what I want. And because I'd been shooting film for, well, since I was about seven or eight years old, so for, you know, like 15 years before I became a journalist testing digital cameras, you know, there was no Photoshop then, literally, you know, there was scanning was completely out of reach. Yeah, there was a bit of kind of analog retouching you could do in the dark room. And I did do some of that. They also dodging and burning. But generally speaking, you would try as hard as you could to get the result in camera because it was so hard to to change it after the result. And I felt that um, I'm actually answering about three questions at once here. I felt that that kind of art had been lost with digital, that because people had to shoot in raw and because they could do so much on their computers and because so many influencers and and great social photographers really got into post-processing that people I think naturally assumed it was necessary what I wanted to point out was several things first is that it's not necessary you can do it and it's a it, it's a fine hobby and art in itself and just because I'm not into it doesn't mean it's not valid it's perfectly valid just not for me you but you don't need to do it to get a good looking picture also, to revisit your camera's processing internally and see that if it's a modern camera, hey, you know, it actually might be pretty good. It might be good enough. It might be more than good enough. And third, also to kind of revisit this this kind of more traditional side of photography. I mean, I love technology. And, and in my reviews, as you know, I really embrace using Wi-Fi and Bluetooth to, you know, trigger the shutter remotely, to tag stuff with GPS coordinates. I'm into all of that. But equally, you know, Learn about exposure, learn about light, learn about the decisive moment and apply all those. Because for me, there is something extremely satisfying about nailing that shot on location. I mean, what do you guys think? So one of the things that I find myself doing, even though I'm shooting Fuji, one of the things I find myself doing is definitely knowing how I can process something will affect how I will shoot. Because sometimes if I'm you know shooting a landscape shot and I know that the foreground is going to be dark and... That's okay because because I know, especially you know, if I'm shooting raw, I can bring up those shadows and like like I mentally know how to fix it. Not to say that I won't try to get the best shot that I can, but um, usually I will you know try to get the best best shot that I can, and then maybe deliberately underexpose, knowing that I can recover a lot of that data later. But it also makes me realize that am I shooting in the moment then, or am I shooting in the future? And the, the the problem with shooting in the future is that I can't go back and say, oh, you know what? This didn't really work out. Um, I'll go back to that same location tomorrow at the same time and, and do better. Like, that doesn't work because you can't go back and get the same exact uh, situations and, and uh, lighting and everything. Yeah, and I think it's also important to say that well, first of all, is that I'm I'm not I'm not an idiot. I don't just shoot in JPEG. I do shoot RAW plus JPEG. The RAW is insurance, and I would always recommend people do that because, you know, memory cards are so big and cheap now. Why why not? But interestingly, I haven't processed one of my RAW files for <laughs> as long as I can remember. But I still do it just mm. in case. Um, and the other thing that I do do that I mentioned in the book, which is quite fun, is that most modern cameras actually let you process RAW files during playback. 
And they let you do little things like boost or, you know, boost the brightness or the contrast or darken it down, change the saturation. Most importantly of all, be able to change the white balance very easily because that's something that's very hard to do on a JPEG once it's cooked in. Um, obviously, change the compression level if you want. Uh, but my favorite thing, especially on the Fujifilm cameras, is to do different approaches on the film simulation. So if you shot it, say, in Velvia, which is the highly saturated mode, why not uh, play it back uh, go into the raw processing in playback and and try it in monochrome instead or try it in a like classic chrome which is a kind of much more muted uh, color um, profile it's really fun to be able to do that and I still call that in camera processing because it is happening in the camera I'm just not using a separate device or computer to do it so there is still it is still a valid thing to shoot in raw and as, as you were saying trying to even if you are intending to do post-processing it's still very important to try and get it as right as possible on the on location because uh you're giving yourself the best information to work with you know you're not having to pull that exposure up too much because you've got it almost spot on to start with you know you're not having to rotate it because you were careful to get that horizon straight i'm amazed at the number of people i see who are, you know you glance over at their screens when you're shooting in the group and the horizon squint and you you, you say to them look um you don't want to be a backseat driver, but at the same time, you, you go, you know, your horizon's not straight. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll fix it later. And you're like, well, you could fix it later or you could fix it now. You could actually fix it now without very Yeah, yeah and, and most cameras have a level that displays on, the, on yeah. the LCD or on the viewfinder. So it's not hard to get it right. And here's the thing, though. You're not dealing with a vector image here. You're dealing with a, a rasterized image. It's, it's built with a grid of squares. And if you rotate a grid of squares and you have to apply a grid of squares to it, well, guess what? They don't fit anymore. And the, whatever you're rotating it in has to interpolate, take apart the image and completely rebuild it. And suddenly, if you were to do that, I know we said, you know, the, the thing I like about the, the, the way I do my reviews is that I don't do test charts. But just for, out of interest, photograph a test chart, slightly squint, and then rotate it in Photoshop and then compare the resolution between them. And you you may be surprised. Sometimes it, the result is OK. Sometimes it's far from OK. And people spend so much money on their cameras and their lenses and they're spoiling it with sloppy technique. So Jeff's answer was interesting and, and it underscores the, the big difference between the two of us. Jeff uses Lightroom and Photoshop. I basically use Apple Photos for most of my editing. I'll sometimes drop into Affinity Photo when there's something really specific I want to do, but I'm not interested in editing photos. I'm not interested in doing a lot of post-processing. I look at photography, I don't like to say this word, but for me, photography is an art. My idea of taking pictures is composition, less than getting all the little details that you can get in Photoshop. So I'm more interested in getting a photo right. And, and before the show, I was looking out my window, I was saying to Jeff, now, this tractor over there, that would look really good in classic Chrome. And I've been using these Fuji film simulations for a year. And it's as if, you know, when you're, when you, if you cook a lot, you're in the kitchen, you know how a certain spice is going to work when you add it to something that you've never added it to. And that's the way I feel with the film simulations, with the other settings too, shadows and highlights, dynamic range and all that. So for me, it's, I know which spice I want to use, but I'm more concerned about the composition than anything else. I really don't want to have to plan to spend a lot of time afterwards. It is funny, though, isn't it, When how used to those film simulations you get and whatever camera you're using. I would really encourage people to do that, to get to know the different on Fujifilm is film simulations on other cameras. They call them profiles or, you know, whatever it is, picture Filters, styles. Yeah. 
get to know them, try them, because as you said, suddenly you'll go, you're in the same way that you look at a scene and go, that needs a 50 mil, that needs a 35, that needs an 85. You know what focal length to start with. Sometimes you're surprised, but you know, you get a feeling for it. You also get a feeling for those film simulations. And for me on the Fujifilm system, I mean, I shoot a lot in Provia, which is the standard one. Velvia I use frequently for long exposures. Um, you know, to kind of really boost those uh, those sort of sunset or uh, blue hour colors. But I love Acros, the kind of high contrast uh, monochrome profile just looks really, really, really nice. And I look at those pictures and I think, I don't need to do anything else to that. And I was posting these pictures on Instagram because some people know me just for the reviews. But if you if you go on Instagram, I'm at Camera Labs, and you'll see my own sort of personal photography. I would post these pictures and people would say, oh, nice picture what what lightroom setting did you use what preset did you use I said, i'm not using mm-hmm. any in the light really i say no i do, you don't you know i don't i'm not showing off here you just get to know your gear and post it you don't need to do anything to it but they've been so accustomed to people posting very heavily worked images that they assumed it was necessary so the the book the idea to write the book was also driven from that it was kind of to show people that sure for some things you definitely need to work you know you look at some images you get that needs to be worked right you can't do that out of camera but look at what you can do it may not interest you you may think well actually i'm after something a bit more dramatic but you might look at it and go do you know what that suits me fine in which case you can make your life a lot easier and spend time taking pictures enjoying that food and travel rather than sitting in front of your computer every night going through a ton of images. (laughs) Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Gordon Lang about making great pictures in camera. Charcoal Book Club is the world's first photo book of the month club. I've been a member for a few months, and I really like the way it's exposing me to photographers I didn't know. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send hand-picked books to your door. The club offers free shipping to the U.S., U.K., and Canada. Members also get exclusive perks like signed copies, access to rare titles, members-only pricing in the store, and more. Use the code PHOTOACTIVE when you join Charcoal Book Club and get 10% off your membership. Whether you're a professional artist with a stocked library or a novice just beginning to build a collection, Charcoal Book Club is an easy and affordable way to stay up-to-date on the most essential work in contemporary photography. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com and use the code PHOTOACTIVE to save 10% on your membership. I love that you mentioned the investment in your camera because for a long time, when I would think of like the filters or the, the, the preset scene modes and things like that, for you know most cameras, and maybe this is because of just you know bad experience with early cameras, they were all gimmicks. They were all you know, hey, you can make all your photos sepia, and then you end up with a real, lot of really bad sepia photos. I think we can all agree that very few cameras implement sepia very well. <laughs> and so, so this part of my brain literally that just ignores a lot of that, and I have to be reminded that no, actually, you know, the the raw processing in the camera is sophisticated and worth doing. And, you know, the the filters and all are going to give you good results, you know, and again, especially having the, the, the raw file backup. I think that I probably echo a lot of our listeners in the sense that there's a ton that my cameras can do that I've forgotten about or never even investigated. And yet, you know, I spent money on it and buy, you know, lenses and, and all of that. So are we using our gear to the potential that it can be. 
don't know. I, I think there's a lot of people. I know you guys don't want to do a gear show, so I'm, I'm very aware of that. But <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who buy a, a new camera, especially when they make the switch from, say, DSLR to mirrorless. And they try, they use the new and I, I'm guilty of doing this with other technologies, whether it's a car or a food processor or a pair of shorts, whatever. You use it the way you used your old one. Yes. And you shouldn't. Yes. Because you're not going to get the best out of it. If you try and autofocus or try and meter or try and, you know, try and operate uh, as a modern mirrorless camera in the same way as you did, say, an old-fashioned DSLR, you're not going to get great results. You know, you, it'll still work. It'll still take pictures, but you won't be making the most of it. And, and you'll think, you know, this is no better than what I had before. This is rubbish. I'm going to go back or I feel dissatisfied with it. And that's awful, you know, to have the buyer's remorse. And you think, well, surely, surely, you know, it's a, it's a new product. It's an expensive product. Why isn't it doing it? And it, it is doing it. It's just that you need to open your mind and relearn it. And it's hard. I find it hard. You know, I'm, a, I'm a, an old traditional photographer in a lot of ways. And and you have to just accept that you're starting from scratch with a lot of these. Yes, everything you know about F numbers, apertures, shutter speeds, motion, that all still applies. You know, you, all that exposure triangle stuff still applies. Lighting, best times of day, composition. In fact, you know almost everything you need to know. It's just more like the kind of basic operation and handling of the device does change. And if you want to make the most of it, you do You do have to relearn it. Read, read the manual. I know people hate to read the manual. I was just going to say, Jeff and I both write articles and books about technology, mostly about Mac software. And it's like you've just changed word processors. You need to read a manual to know how it works. You'll find some of the things are the same. The file menu is the same. The little buttons to close the windows are the same. But the way it works is different, and you need to spend the time to look at it. And I'm in a number of Facebook groups about photography and cameras and things, and Fujifilm groups and black and white photo groups and all this. And I keep seeing all these people who are asking really simple questions that are in the manual who are, who are doing things that could be easily fixed if they knew how to use the camera. And it, it's not that hard. Now, it, it is a bit daunting when you look at all the menus in, in a camera these days. Yeah, and some of them are terribly laid out as well. They're very badly laid out. They're not necessarily translated from Japanese very well. They're confusing. And then you do something and you go back and you're not in the same menu where you were before. But you've got to take some time because we've talked about film simulations and profile, but there are things that I like to do. For instance, bracketing. You can set a bracketing system up to do exposure bracketing, to do film simulation bracketing. Unfortunately, you can't do that on the Fujifilm with JPEG and RAW, film simulation bracketing. But you can choose up to three film simulations. So you're taking a picture. You might want to use Provia you might want to use Velvia and Acros, and you can get the same picture in all three. And this also allows you to, if you're not sure if this picture will look good in color or black and white, this gives you both possibilities without having to go back to the menu, switch to another film simulation and shoot another picture. And I think most modern cameras let you bracket in a number of ways, right? Yeah, although what I was talking about earlier is an, is an alternative way of doing that, a bit more a bit more manual. But if you shoot in RAW or RAW plus JPEG, you can open the RAW file and playback and then just convert it to as many different film simulations as you want. So I do exactly the same thing, but I may, instead of doing three, I might do like seven of them and, and just look at them all. And, and they're all based on the same one. So it's not like the pose or the lighting has changed. It's exactly the same image. So that's, that's quite fun to do. Right. And, and Fujifilm cameras are even more interesting. I think in the past year or so, they updated the firmware. So if your camera's connected, not all models, but if your camera's connected to your computer and you're using their app, 
you can open a raw file and you can choose a film simulation and it uses the processor in the camera to convert it and bring it back into the app. So you can even do that in post-production on your computer to try all the different film simulations. Well, Fujifilm, of course, famously, their raw files were very hard to, to work with <laughs> for quite a long true. time. And, yeah, and luckily, their, you know, their JPEG engine was, was excellent. So, uh, yeah, I think, like I say, the greatest advocates you get for, uh, for in-camera stuff is uh, mm. uh, the Fujifilm owners. And I think about 40% of the images in my books, there's 100 images in this book, travel photos that I took, and about 40 of them are Fujifilm ones. Well, as I said, it was seeing all those 40 Fuji images that made me want to try out the Fujifilm simulations and, and really sold me. So you should get a commission on that. Um, <laughs> if, well, only, if only. That. If only, I know, right? They're good um, to me, though. They invite me to events and stuff. So, so we've talked about the big things. What are the smaller things that people need to learn in their cameras to get better JPEGs? So we talked about the, the kind of the preset profiles, right, which, which apply a series of settings. Those settings are generally uh, saturation, so that's the amount of color, uh, sharpening, um contrast and also noise reduction so they they each of those color ones so when you go to provia or velvia on the fuji system or you know vivid or standard on on other systems they're applying preset combinations to those but you don't have to stick with those you could say well you know what i love the color on that but i think it's too sharp you can go in and turn that down i found with olympus for example is that their jpegs are very very crisp very sharp uh, without um, without any adjustment, uh, but using the default settings. So generally, what I do with Olympus bodies is go in and I just just nudge that sharpening down a bit. Again, it depends what you want to do with your images. I mean, they do look punchy. They do look nice. They're very eye catching, but maybe a bit too eye catching for some taste. So learn how it applies its sharpening and it, and its contrast. But in terms of actually using the camera. A lot of cameras have got a kind of my menu option, which where, where you basically get to put your favorite things on the menu. So rather than going through, pay, you know, all that setting I always use is on page four of the custom settings. And then that other settings on page <laughs> two of the camera settings and on page three of the movie settings. You can just customize your own my menu. And a lot of people don't really realize this. A lot of cameras let you do this now. Also, most cameras have a kind of quick menu uh, or a function menu that that brings up maybe like eight frequently used settings on the screen that you can then adjust very quickly and easily. What you may not realize is that on a lot of cameras, those are customizable as well. So if you think, Do you know, what? I never actually changed the metering. I never changed the metering. I never changed the metering. I use exposure compensation. If I'm, I use the, I, I want the camera's full technology and full brain at my disposal. What? How? It seems almost rude that that I would assume I know more than that camera does when it comes to metering. That camera knows way more than me. You work it out, camera. And if I don't like it, I'll just use exposure compensation. I'll just say <laughs> overruled and then just do, give it minus one EV or plus two thirds or whatever. So I don't even change. So I look at that little thing. I think, you know, I never change the metering, but I'm always changing the AF area. And why do I have to go through yeah. those menus to find it? So. Yeah then I'll, I'll swap that out and put the AF area in instead. So customization can really, really help. And anything that doesn't get in the way of the pitch taking process is a good thing because you want this, this, this tool to work with you. You know, it should be like a well-worn coat or how, you know, whatever. It should be automatic. Yeah. There shouldn't be a struggle. You, you said something interesting though, about you've got this camera and why are you ignoring all that it can do? On my two Fujifilm cameras, I have aperture set to automatic. I have shutter speed set to automatic. I have ISO set to automatic. Now, on some cameras, they call this program mode. But with the Fuji cameras, there is a thing called program shift. 
And if you turn one of the dials, either the back dial or the front dial, I think you can choose which one. What it does is it switches through a set of settings of different aperture and shutter speed. So all I need to do is move this dial a little bit because I want a large aperture so I get some background blur, or I want a tight aperture because I want some depth of field. And I shoot that way. I, I think sometimes I read on the internet people talking about how using program mode is for idiots. And and I'm like, this is these are th these are cameras that cost more than a thousand pounds, fifteen hundred dollars each. Why would I not want to use this technology? Yeah, completely. And the great thing about mirrorless cameras is over DSLRs is that they're using the full image sensor. They can use, they may not, but they can use the full image sensor for metering and scene and face detection. So it could, if it has an image processor that can handle it, it could have 24, 36, 42 megapixels worth of information per frame, but sorry, several uh, refreshing or whatever, 25, 50 times a second to analyze and go, do you know what? I'm pretty sure that's a sky. I'm pretty sure that's a cat. And I know what to do with cats and skies. Uh, whereas a lot of other cameras have got much, much, much lower resolution, simpler metering and scene recognition systems, and they don't always work. And that's, again, the people who generally complain about this stuff are generally DSLR owners. No disrespect to DSLR owners, but you can't assume that all cameras work that way. And there are more sophisticated ways of evaluating a scene. So, you know, technology does does move on. And as you say, why not? Why why buy this expensive camera, this sophisticated camera, and not use it? Um, I mean, this, it's like, yeah, I mean, because I, I live in the UK, I have a manual gearbox. But if automatic cars were more prevalent where I live, I'd go for that. Why not? I'm not a racer. I don't care. I also, I don't know how to fix the car. I don't know what's under the bonnet, under the hood. You know, get a, get a professional to fix that. I don't need to know that stuff. Or when I see professional photographers, do you know they're not shooting in manual mode because they're waiting for the right moment, the right expression. They're waiting for the decisive moment when the person kicks the football. They're waiting for, you know, the person to walk past the cafe in, a, in an interesting way. They don't want to be mucking about with a change of light and think, oh, no, my exposure is wrong. But I was shooting in manual because I'm a professional. No, if you're a professional, <laughs> your job is to get the picture and you get it by whatever means necessary. Why make life difficult for yourself? override as i said before you know overruled by all means overrule it if you think you know better or you think actually i know the camera thinks this but i do actually want it to look really dark and moody or i want it to do you know really overexpose it because i want a kind of high key effect then yeah overrule it but start you know let it help you there is no shame in using automatic modes now i use i use manual when i'm doing astrophotography because you have to uh, i use manual sometimes for long exposures but not always you know, use use the use the tool that you need to get to get the job done. But if I'm taking portraits, so I'm doing landscapes, you know, normal pictures or street or sports, I I want all that tech behind me. And in fact, one of the one of the best things I did in the last few years, photography wise, was embrace auto ISO, something that I was always very mm. anti because I knew best. I wanted the lowest ISO possible for the best possible quality, right? But in the meantime, what happens is cameras with every generation get better and better at high ISO. And suddenly you've got a camera that's producing great results, even at 6,400 ISO. Obviously, I would try and avoid that if I'm doing a nice landscape shot. I want to print big. But use auto ISO. Set the limits to, you know, what you're comfortable working with. And then let it, let it work it out. We spoke just before this show about photographing cycling. And I, I use... 
um, my favorite settings for those is to is to actually shoot in manual. Having said, don't shoot in manual. <laughs> I set the shutter speed fast enough to freeze the action. I set the mm-hmm. aperture for what I want, which generally for a sports <laughs> shot is a long telephoto. I want a very large aperture for a very shallow depth of field. But, you know, the lighting's changing. So auto ISO. I love manual with auto ISO. That That for me was a revelation, seeing that the camera could work out Everything else, I'd said, I want you to use this shutter speed. I want you to use this aperture. The rest, you work it out. All of this goes back to the idea of being present in the shot and focusing on what you're shooting and the contents and the composition and all, all of that. Um, and if the camera can can handle so much of that, then you know you have more room in your brain to actually be creative or to to look for the the, the things in the scene that you might not have have seen because you are you know trying to mess with dials and such. Um, do you find yourself uh, shooting more or or fewer um, shots when you're trying to? Uh, grab things in camera. I mean, like, all right, I know what this is going to be. I know how this is going to look. And now I can just go boom, boom, boom. And now I've got it. Or do you tend to shoot, you know, sort of more volume? Well, the trouble with volume is you have to go through it. Yeah. And volume you need for sports and for certain types of portraits. You know, if you obtain photos of kids, it is beneficial to have lots of frames because you'll get the expression, you'll get that moment, especially in sports, when someone is kicking a ball or pedaling a bike or jumping for something, you know, their eyes are closed for a lot of it. And and then they'll they'll suddenly open it. And if you've got those frames at your disposal, then yeah, shoot as many frames as you can. But when I'm doing landscapes and architecture is one of my, one of my favorite things to shoot as well, I don't tend to shoot much. I do, um, I do kind of look around the scene. I, I explore it a lot more. Again, it's kind of having shot film for a long time, You've got this, especially as for a while I shot medium format. So it's not even saying you've got 24, 36 exposures. You might have 10 exposures. Mm. And you've got to be – now I used to shoot with a rangefinder. So half the time I didn't even realize the lens cap was on. So I would, I would only have like four pictures per roll. It would cost me so much oh, money. No, I was no. like, forget <laughs> this. I've had it with this system. And everything was squint and I couldn't rotate it because I couldn't get the horizon right. But <laughs> anyway, uh, so, yeah, I you know, the beauty of digital is that you can see – here's the other thing, right? You can see what you're going to get, right? Especially Mm -hmm. if you're going to be viewing the image on a screen. If you're going to print it, then, yeah, you might not be able to completely see. But if you're going to consume this image on a screen, which I do with most of my photography because I I post it on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter um, or put it in YouTube videos and things, or view it on a, a laptop or on a projector or whatever, a TV set, it's mostly digital presentation. So... If, if if it doesn't look right on the screen, even when you're composing it, then change something. <laughs> you know, there's no excuse for getting it wrong. If it looks naff, then change something or don't take it. You know, it's OK. And also, I think it's it's OK to go to a location and not get a good picture. I know that if you've spent a lot of money on a big holiday, say you've gone to the Grand Canyon for the first time, you're like, no, I, I want to picture the Grand Canyon. I've been to Grand Canyon several times and I have not got a decent picture of the Grand Canyon. And I'm okay with that, right? Uh, because I got to see it with my eyes and I love it. And I get to hopefully go back at some time and, and have another go at it. But it doesn't bother me that I, you know, that I didn't get a great picture of it because I've got a great picture somewhere else. In fact, just down the road, there's loads of really nice canyons you get nice pictures of. So 
you know, I'm kind of kind of at peace with that. So yeah, I I uh, I've kind of gone off on a on another one of my rambles. But I when I'm shooting landscapes and stuff, I don't take many pictures because you can see whether it's going to turn out right or not, and you change it until it is going to be all right. Always check your histograms when you, especially if you're doing pictures at night, because the screen can look super bright, and you think that's mm-hmm. exposed perfectly. You get home and they're all massively underexposed because you're judging it on the screen brightness. Don't do that. Look, play back those histograms, and you'll know if the tonal range is right or not, and if you need to adjust it. But apart from that, you know, if it look you you if it looks good on the screen on the back, I know it sounds so amateurish, doesn't it? But it's have a have a look at my have a look at my pictures. <laughs> Good, good listeners of this podcast and see what you think. As I said, you're spending a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars on a camera. You kind of should expect that it's going yeah. to do something pretty good. You hope so. <laughs> I just want to <laughs> mention one manual thing that I've been playing with a little bit recently that I think people should check out. Everyone's used to using autofocus and autofocus works about 95% of the time, but not a hundred percent of the time. Sometimes you're taking pictures of certain things the 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 cat's eyes will be out of focus because the nose is in focus. So I strongly recommend that people put their camera into manual focus mode and turn on focus peaking, which is this feature that puts an outline around the areas that are in focus. And get used to turning that focus wheel and focusing in and out and seeing where the focus changes because it really will change the, for certain types of pictures, not landscapes, which are far away. It will change what the pictures are. Now, I started shooting film myself back in the early 80s, and everything was manual, and you focus. And as you say, it was expensive. But that focusing is something that you have to learn. And when you learn how the focusing combines with your choice of aperture, I think it makes a big difference in not so much the composition, but the way the actual perception of the subject is going to be in your frame. Another trick I learned from macro photographers, which is similar to that, is a manual focusing one. Again, you use peaking, but you don't adjust the focus. You get it close, and then you yes. lean in and out. Or you get one of those sliding rails that you put on a, a tripod. If you're using a tripod, you can get a rail that you slide. And once you get focused on the frontmost thing, you slide it in a little more, you change the aperture. Because if you're physically moving, you're going to be swaying a little bit, and you'll be out of focus when you press the shutter. Just because of the fact that you're moving your body. Another technological thing that people, again, moving, it sounds like I'm bashing DSLRs here, but <laughs> uh, if you, if you, I see so many people uh, recomposing, which is the way we used to do things with like film cameras, especially when you had, had one AF area in the middle, you would point it at the subject, half press the, you know, focus on it, keep the shutter half pressed or lock the focus in some way, recompose, push it all the way down, take the picture. But, if you know anything about triangles, then you'll know that the distance has actually changed. Now, if you're dealing with a low-resolution camera or film, then it's very forgiving and the depth of field may be big enough to, to cover it. But when you look at modern cameras with very, very shallow depth of field lenses and extremely high-resolution sensors, that, that difference is, is visible. And if you do the old point and recompose, then your picture is going to be out of focus. When you're also moving on from that, what you were talking about, the cat's eyes, now this doesn't really apply to animals because the the manufacturers still haven't quite nailed face detection on animals although they are working on it for humans it can work extremely well because it will if it recognizes a face and then goes beyond that like for example sony has got very effective eye detection now as well if it nails the eye then it's ignoring the nose the nose is is obviously the the thing that's closest to the camera in the picture but you want that eye to be in focus especially the closest eye so let the camera tech work that out. You know, wherever that face is on the frame, 
use that technology if you have it, if it works well on, on your particular camera, because that can transform portraiture, especially when you don't have time to really recompose or to, or to think too much about your framing, like with, again, with kids or people who are a bit impatient or uncomfortable or street situations or even sports. You know, th these cameras can focus so fast that you can actually think about portraiture while someone's running towards you. You know, you don't have to worry about, oh, I better put my airfare over it, recompose. It's about embracing that that new technology. So, yeah, AF is another thing that you have to relearn, especially if you've gone from uh, DSLR, which will have, a, you know, a concentration of AF points in like a lozenge or diamond in the middle onto a mirrorless camera where it, it will cover a much bigger area or in some cases, even the entire frame. Okay, Gordon, this has been really interesting. I strongly recommend that people buy Gordon's book, In Camera. There'll be links in the show notes. It has 100 photos with a little bit of a story about each one, about how you composed it, what types of settings you used, which camera, etc. It, it really changed the way I take pictures. So thanks an awful lot, Gordon, for joining us. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff and Kirk. It's been a really, really fun show. And sorry if I derailed it and talked about gear a bit much. Derailing was perfect. I mean, I would say th this isn't even a gear... Uh, episode because we're talking about like using it in terms of making the shot rather than hey what kind of new lens is out now yeah when we say we don't talk about gear it's that it's we're not talking about the new cameras because we kind of both feel that we've got good cameras we don't need to keep buying a new one every six months like some people do and while we will eventually talk about different types of lenses when do you use a wide angle when do you use a telephoto it's just not that interesting. I, I like to take pictures. I don't like to worry about gear. Exactly. It's a means to an end. Get out there and start taking more pictures after you've read my book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Gordon. Thanks for having Thank you, me. Gordon. It's time for another photo challenge in our Facebook group. This month, we want to see the best in-camera JPEG that you can shoot. Think about what Gordon has talked about in this episode. Check out your camera to see what options are available and post a photo that you've made in-camera with no processing afterwards. Let's talk about our snapshots of the week. Jeff, what have you got? My snapshot this week is an external hard drive. It's by the company Cable Matters. It's a 480 gig SSD external drive. But what's interesting about it is that it's a Thunderbolt 3 connection. So you get the Thunderbolt 3 speeds on a compatible computer like a MacBook Pro. So if you have a lot of data that you want to transfer, let's say you have a bunch of photos and you're out and about, you're on a photo expedition, uh, this is a great little external hard drive. It's not very big. It's not very heavy. It is a little expensive. It's about $400. But again, if that's what you need and you don't want to wait to transfer a whole lot of data, uh, it works really well. Kirk, how about you? I've talked about magazines a couple of times already, and I find photo magazines interesting not the kind that tell you how to do things with Photoshop, but the kind that show you photos. And this week I've got another one. It is the LFI magazine. That is the Leica Photography International magazine, F, because in German, photography is spelled with an F. I've subscribed to this magazine for a while, and what I really like is each issue has a number of portfolios by photographers, some of them very well known, some of them not so much. For example, a recent issue had some photos by Elliot Erwitt, classic street photographer, black and white, some of the photographers are young and current. Some of them are much older. But what's interesting is that there are no ads in the magazine. Of course, that's not true because about a quarter or a third of the magazine is about Leica cameras, and that's in the back. But as you go through the beginning part, it's just photos from people who, of course, use Leica cameras to take the photos. But these are very, very good photographers. 
if you don't care about Leica cameras or can't afford them like me, you may just read the back section and flip through it. But it's worth getting this magazine for the rest of the photographic content and not to have all these ads of different cameras and lenses and tripods and all that. So that's LFI Magazine, and there'll be a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. The secret word is swordfish. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 10% off your membership at Charcoal Book Club. Go to charcoalbookclub.com and use the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word, and you'll get the discount automatically.